Oh, Greg. Yeah. Do you believe in love at first sight? No. Oh, <laughs> like, no. Li- like anyone who does is lying to themselves, honey. It's in more my, like, in my opinion. I think it's more like infatuation at first sight is definitely possible, but that must just be like physical attraction. Yeah, it's like, okay, yeah, I've seen a hot person. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, we met how many years ago now? 15, 16 years ago almost. But it wasn't love. love at first sight because I didn't know who you were and I thought you were someone else and like I'd see someone else because you messaged me on Facebook and I'd be like, there he is. And then when I saw you, I was like, wait, I've been staring at the wrong person. <laughs> Welcome to Netflix's Know It All. I'm Greg Brown. And I'm Mitch Moffat. You might know us from YouTube or TikTok or the ASAP Science Guys and your hosts for this podcast. And today, how do we know when we're really in love? How love hijacks our brains and how our brains decide what's attractive and what's not. And does love actually even exist? <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> This week, we watched Your Place or Mine on Netflix. It's the story of Debbie and Peter, two best friends that are total opposites, played by Reese Witherspoon and Ashton Kutcher. She craves routine with her son in L.A. He thrives on change in New York. When they swap houses and lives for a week, they discover what they think they want might not be what they really need. Peter, 20 years of friendship. Can you believe it? How do you still speak to me? Do you remember the first night we met? Never stops being weird. Just so weird. <laughs> Debbie, you need to take a break. I just need to be practical, which is what you have to be when you're a single mom. Right, right. Tragic. I don't know. You need help. Let me help. Taking care of Jack is a lot of work. I think I got this. You and I tell each other everything, right? Always. I think I may have met someone. Can I tell you something? Immediately. The night that Debbie and I spent together after I found myself thinking about her. You have to tell her. It's too late. This movie got us thinking a lot more about exactly how love works, like physically works in your brain. We know the friends to lovers pipeline we see in movies, but what about love at first sight? Falling in love before you even really know someone at all. No, I don't believe it. Love at first sight is a myth. IMO, in my opinion, my opinion. Oh, I love it when you say a bunch of sexy words like that. <laughs> so we start where most decisions occur, the brain. Your brain gets completely hijacked by chemicals. The first place we see love in the brain is a region called the ventral tegmental area, or VTA. Recognizing a potential reward in the making, the VTA begins producing a chemical called dopamine, the feel-good neurotransmitter, flooding your brain with enhanced feelings of bliss, euphoria, and desire. That's kind of like lust at first sight, I'm Mm -hmm. thinking. Thank you, dopamine. I know that feeling. Dopamine travels down something called the mesolimbic pathway, telling the brain to expect more rewards. This network is so ancient, even worms and flies, which evolved about 2 billion years ago, have a similar reward system in their brains. So our brains truly turn us into worms when we fall in love. Awesome. Makes sense. Your brain starts firing off more dopamine. You feel euphoric. Desire kicks in and starts seeking more dopamine that you're getting from seeing someone new. And into circles, your brain goes. This sounds so fun. I want to fall in love with someone new. Bye, Mitch. (laughs) I think I might be in love with somebody else. Falling in love, by the way, can happen as quickly as a fifth of a second. Not that they're the same, but dopamine is the same thing that floods your brain when you use certain addictive, dangerous drugs like cocaine. 
Next up, your brain sends a signal to your adrenal gland, which manufactures adrenaline and norepinephrine, the chemicals that get your body ready to fight or take flight. And this is why you might start feeling nervous or sweaty or butterflies in your stomach. I feel butterflies every time I look at you, Mitch. That's just the parasite talking. <laughs> yeah, no, it's also not true. I take a bath. <laughs> then your brain turns off a part of your brain called the amygdala. That's the area that controls the perception of fear, anger, and sadness. At the same time, it dampens the ability of our mid and frontal cortex to use logic, criticize, or think clearly. That is so funny. I can think of times where I've been sort of caught off guard by someone's beauty and I truly just like can't talk and end up saying like the weirdest stuff. And mm -hmm. like I consider myself social, but sometimes I'm like, oh, oh my God, I am trapped. <laughs> so no ability to be scared, angry or sad or use critical thinking to see red flags in a potential partner. <laughs> Brain, I feel like you're setting us up for failure. Yeah, it feels like the brain isn't able to see red flags. Maybe it's wanting to do a little something, something with someone, if you know what I mean. Greg, we're keeping it PG on this podcast. No, I actually mean like making babies. Humans are evolutionarily hardwired to figure out ways to produce offspring. You ever going to have kids? What? I don't know. Should I? I mean, you're not terrible at it. 97% of mammals don't necessarily pair up to rear their young, but us human beings mostly do. Bonding in pairs for humans evolved about 4 million years ago to send our DNA into the next generation, which leads us to the next level of your brain on love, which is attachment. Stuff like adrenaline and dopamine are basically quick-acting chemicals designed to get us interested in someone new as soon as possible. Once everything's feeling good, the brain releases oxytocin, often called the love hormone. Oxytocin is produced in a region in your brain called the hypothalamus. Your brain usually fires it during times of intimacy, like hugging, breastfeeding, and an orgasm. Studies show oxytocin strengthens social bonds in mammals, and intimate activities that trigger its release help couples create strong bonds. By the way, one illegal drug that might mimic the way oxytocin works in our brain is MDMA or ecstasy. It's so interesting that other animals don't really pair bond or sort of bring up their children together. And it makes me wonder, are humans doing it because of society? Like, is there social pressure to make us do it? It's hard to know the answer to this one, like for sure. But one researcher had a guess. Because monogamous attachment is not characteristic of the African apes, and because it is universal in like our human societies, I would venture that this brain system may have evolved soon after our ancestors descended from the fast disappearing trees of East Africa some 4 million years ago. With the emergence of an upright human stride, females became obliged to carry their infants in their arms instead of on their backs. How could a female carry the equivalent of a 20-pound bowling ball in one arm and tools and weapons in the other and still protect and provide for herself effectively? A male would have had considerable difficulty attracting, protecting, and providing for a group of, say, women as he wandered the East African plains, but he could defend and provide for a single female and her infant. So over time, natural selection favored those with the genetic propensity to form pair bonds, and the human brain chemistry for attachment evolved. This is all based on evolutionary biologists' theories based on the way we look at apes and evolution. I'm very interested. 
Okay, so I understand why our brain wants us to fall in love. Basically, it fires any chemical it could find to get us to attach to someone new. Mm -hmm. But how does it decide who deserves <laughs> that chemical firing? Like who's hot? Yeah, hot or not. How does brain know? It's so true. I feel like sometimes I can be so caught off guard, like at a party. I get so attracted to someone who only after talking to them, something like happens. Like how... Do you know if you're attracted to someone? Ooh, well, there's obviously there's superficial like physical attraction that you can see from across the room. Like but, they got big old pecs. But, <laughs> but definitely, once someone opens their mouth, it can make a big difference. Yeah. Like there are people who are physically attractive that immediately become not so, and people that I might not predict are that attractive to me. But once they start talking, they're either funny or super smart or interesting, and that can make me really attracted to them. Science thinks there are a couple of things that we look for in a potential partner. First up is their smell. You've probably heard of this, but there are naturally occurring pheromones that we emit. They're chemicals that are in our sweat and skin. Science suggests we subconsciously factor that in when we're initially attracted to someone. Is that cologne? No. I ate a candle. No, you didn't. The studies behind all of this is very hetero-focused, as usual with science. But in one study, female participants were asked to rate the smell of several t-shirts slept in by various men. Overall, the women preferred the sense of men who had disease-resistant gene profiles that would complement their own. This suggests that subconsciously we look for a partner that will help us to produce strong, healthy babies, resistant to diseases, potentially based on their smell. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to pretend like we ran a legit study, but we tried this experiment once with a bunch of shirts, and we did choose each other's yeah. shirts without knowing, fully blind tested. That was really fun. And it's weird you chose mine because I do stink. <laughs> but maybe I smell like my jeans are resistant. <laughs> But fine, we want someone who smells good to us, obviously. But let's come down to the real deal. We want to fall in love with some hotties, too, right? <laughs> I guess that is true. I'm trying so hard to deny it. But, you know, sometimes people who are hot are just hot. And there are some scientific things that we do find attractive. Like a symmetrical face is generally considered a hallmark of conventional attractiveness. Studies have found that having a symmetrical face implies the presence of quote-unquote good genes, while an overly lopsided face may imply poor health, alcohol abuse, or smoking. You still got that tall, squared jaw, long eyelash vibe going on? Some people like that. Meanwhile, in men, having a longer ring finger in comparison to the index finger is an indicator of more testosterone and therefore a higher sperm count, increased fertility, a healthier heart, and better genes. I'm looking at mine now, and it's pretty short. What about yours, Greg? My, my <laughs> ring finger is way longer than my index, but this is making testosterone sound really good, whereas we've done quite a few research studies about how testosterone is also poison and too much of it can <laughs> be bad. So let's not, you know... Just because my ring finger is so long ain't mean I'm like, you know, attracting all the boys and girls. One of our university biology professors once said, males are just testosterone poisoned females. <laughs> and we will die before then. My longer ring finger brings all the boys to the yard. <laughs> this one's super interesting. We look for people who act like us. One study of 1,523 couples in the U.S. found that happy couples' personalities synced up 86% of the time. I mean, like, this doesn't imply for us. <laughs> All of our tension is like, we're like, we're Completely so opposite. different. Yeah, we're like, an opposites attract, right? <laughs> and it's not just personality. You're also likely to be attracted to someone who has similar values and beliefs as you, which I do think we link up on. For sure. 
Except for the belief that you should blast music so loud in public. Oh, yeah. I do blast music coming out of my backpack on my bike. I'm like, everyone, we're having a DJ party. In a different study of 1,500 couples, every single couple held similar life views, including the ones who had actually just recently met. A study has found that who we find attractive is most strongly influenced by our life experiences. Having a positive relationship with someone may have you subconsciously pairing their facial characteristics with positive information. Familiarity and exposure to certain faces increases their attractiveness. Also, here's the kicker. People who look similar become more attractive to you as well. So we're just obsessed with ourselves. <laughs> yeah. It is interesting because I feel like that moment at a party when I become unattracted to someone who might be conventionally hot is when they start acting and saying things that I don't believe in or you know, act differently than me, kind mm -hmm. of. Mm -hmm. You say something that offends me, you peace out. So we want someone who smells good, acts like us, and might even look a little bit like us. <laughs> yeah, that sounds so creepy. I mean, we'd all probably marry ourselves if we could. Wow. Also, here's the kicker. We find people who look similar to ourselves to be more attractive. That's just gross, and I can't believe you said it out loud. So by now we know that all sorts of chemicals fire off in your brain when you find someone new and fall in love, but we all know that can't last forever, right? According to 2016 research led by Rutgers University anthropologist Helen Fisher, people in love spend 85% of their waking hours thinking about their new person. Wow. Yeah, that's not exactly <laughs> sustainable, Greg. I love you, but I do not even have the energy to think of you that much anymore. How do you work? How does one work? <laughs> And it is true that science shows the chemicals in your brain that originally get fired when you fall in love start to return sort of back to baseline after 12 to 18 months. 12 to 18 months is sort of the honeymoon period you can expect from friends and family when they first start dating someone. But a different study from Helen Fisher showed that the dopamine-related brain areas that are active in people falling in love are still similarly active in the brains of long-term, happily married couples. That's very cute. I love that. Happily being the keyword. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, and he's so happy to see you. It's so cute. It's gross. In one study, 15 people in their 50s and 60s who told Fisher they were in love after an average of 21 years of marriage were put into a brain scanner. What she found was that some of the brain circuits, the basic brain pathways for intense romantic love, were still active. She's quoted as saying these long-term partners still feel some of the early stage intense feelings of romantic love. So yes, it is possible. She says this, but with a caveat, you have to pick the right person. I wonder if we scanned our brains if we'd still be in love. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we could do that so bad. Like, I know. See the results. I like to think we are. Yeah. <laughs> but it'd be so funny to just have the result pop up. Like, absolutely. <laughs> hate each other. <laughs> well, one thing we always say is we are extremely different mm -hmm. and we look different, but I think our morals and our values are the same. So it's kind of interesting to look at this research and try and look at ourselves and be like, are we in love? <laughs> as much as we're different, though, I think because we are interested in the same things, we pull each other to the ways that we feel different. Mm. How do I describe this? Like, you are more outgoing and more excited and ready to be out there. And I want that. So you can bring that out in me. Huh. And I think even though I'm more introverted and think a little deeper, like I think that That's you what want, I want that too, and yeah. you bring each other to those spaces. So our desires and morals in that way are similar. And I do think that when I go to parties and meet other people is when I'm like, everyone is so different and you are more similar to me. You know, like not everyone can talk to me for hours about Bjork. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the most important thing in our relationship. <laughs> 
like actually. <laughs> Before we go, one last little factoid to take you on your day. In 1871, noted scientist Charles Darwin, you know him, you love him, wrote of a female mallard duck who became attracted to a pintail duck, a bird of a different species. Darwin wrote, It was evidently a case of love at first sight, for she swam around the newcomer caressingly. From that hour, she forgot her old partner. So there you go. Love at first sight <laughs> does exist, even cross species. It's like, wow, Charles Darwin wrote a poem. <laughs> So there you have it, the science behind love. That's it for this week's Know-It-All. I'm Greg Brown. And I'm Mitch Moffat. Be sure to check out the entire season of Know-It-All, where we talk through the science, psychology, and history of everything from how good lying feels to what happens when we die. So I gossip actually helps society. Check them all out, and don't forget to rate and review. Until next time. <laughs>